You are listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing, strategy, and sustainability hosted by Graham Sinclair. Through Vote, through our index fund, we are essentially permanent owners of the companies we invest in. Um, Through the other funds at our firm, we are long-term investors, you know, measured not in weeks or months, but in years. Um, and, and I think importantly, you get to a point, I mean, you know this from when you build out a financial model, you get to a point where um, your interests essentially align with an infinite time horizon. You know, once you push out far enough right. and the decisions you make, you're no longer about maximizing quarterly earnings, you're about how do we maximize the terminal value of this business, the valuation multiple. Trust mm. is so important in, a, uh, in an economy like ours and trust has been right. so eroded over time. Yeah. One thing yeah. I think a lot about is like, how do you restore that trust? You know, how right. do you build that trust as a new company? How do you restore that trust for, for companies that have been operating for a long time? And mm. we do a whole show on it. But, yeah. um, but thinking about, I think if, if I'm a business leader today, I think think about how you build trust with your employees, how you build right. trust with your consumer stakeholders is so critical. I'm pleased to welcome in season one, episode 11 of the ESG and Coffee podcast, Michael O'Leary, Managing Director at Engine Number no. One. His bio reads, quote, Managing Director at Engine Number no. One and co-author of Accountable, out now from HarperCollins, unquote. We first met uh, on Twitter. I spotted uh, Michael. I'd been following the Engine Number no. One campaign. And I invited him to be one of our featured speakers when I curated the talent for Greenfin 21 by GreenBiz with Joel McCower. Uh, we had that in April of 2021. This year, it's at, in New York in June. So when Michael was at Greenfin 21, uh, it was April, and he couldn't talk about the Exxon Mobile campaign, which you may know, turned out to be rather successful in a, a stunning kind of way. And I, I wrote something on that for Green Beers, so I'll include that note in the show note. So instead, Michael came and spoke about ESG in your 401ks, which I really appreciate, a really down-to-earth approach, but also kind of a systems-level thinking approach, which reflects uh, his mindset and, and the work that he's looking to do now, having uh, leading the Transform ETF um, uh, V-O-T-E V-O-T-E is the name uh, the ticker of the ETF that they have at engine number one I was very keen also to begin the interview by referencing the uh, interview Ma- Michael had done with Kai Rizdal on Marketplace been a big fan of that show for, for many many years so I started there but we covered a lot of ground from then on and uh, I think we ran a little bit long on this interview there was a lot of ground to cover and I also think if you stay for the bonus tape at the end, you'll hear probably the longest bonus tape of any of the season one episodes. I'll be back at the end of the interview to run you through my four high points. Uh, enjoy the show. And as always, a reminder, it is for your entertainment and interest. It's an interview. It's not investment advice. Enjoy. Well, in this episode of season one, The Originals, I'm so pleased to welcome to the ESG and Coffee podcast, one of the originals making ESG positive investment happen. Uh, LinkedIn describes them as, quote, managing director at engine number one and author of Accountable, unquote. 
Twitter describes him as managing director at engine number one underscore uh, engine number underscore one and co-author of Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism out now from HarperCollins. And we'll uh, dive into that a few times on the call today, I think. Please, as always, check the show notes, uh, detailed show notes and check the tweet thread and the LinkedIn thread where I try to thread some highlights of this. Our, our interview, as always, has three deep dives, four short espresso shot questions where we're trying to get behind the numbers and, and pull out who the human is. And please stay to the end where we had the bonus tape where we kind of kick back and talk about what we missed, what we wanted to talk about more and, uh, and how the interview went. So with that, uh, welcome, Michael O'Leary. Hey, Graham, excited for this. Excellent, me too, me too. And you've got some coffee with you, cheers. Cheers. So where in the world are you today, Michael? I am working remotely from my apartment in Brooklyn. Excellent. Our team is split about half and half across San Francisco and New York. We are moving full-time into our office until the new year, so. Excellent, and where will your office be? In the meatpacking district. Okay, okay, nice. Um, and how are you feeling today? How are things with your family and friends? Uh, how, how are you doing? All good, all good. I uh, was able to see my uncle last night. So I think like a lot of folks have, uh, have not been able to spend much time with family through the pandemic. So it's nice now that we're able to a little bit. How about yourself? Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for asking. Well, this is, uh, this is Woodstock, Vermont. We're in the Green Mountain State. Um, we, there are zero billboards by the highways and the highest rates of vaccination in the country. So very happy to be in, in to Vermont out. right now. Yeah. Um, so if we were to pop down to your local coffee shop or cafe, what would I be ordering you right now? Oh, coffee with milk. Keep it simple. Coffee with milk, straight up. Yeah. Organic, shade grown, you know, fair trade, all of that. Yeah, right. Right? yeah right. obviously. Do you have a favorite barista or cafe you want to give a quick shout out to? Oh, let's see. Around the corner from us, IXV. If anyone's IXV. over in Warren Hill. Okay. All right. We will include that in the show note. I look forward to seeing what it looks like. <laughs> um, so I'm curious. First up on Twitter, you wrote, quote, Great to be on Marketplace with Kai Rizda on Molly Wood this week, talking about our climate, capitalism, and what investors must do to meet this moment. So first up, big fan of the show, have been for decades, one of my favorite things about American public media. So opening question, you can just keep it short if you want. Can capitalists save the planet? Mm. We have to. I mean, I think the best argument for the sort of fundamental transformation that's gonna be required across every industry, across how we generate energy, how we grow food, how we build our cities. The best argument for fundamental transformation is also the simplest, which is what's the alternative? I think we're now already living in a world, a one degree world. We're trying to fight as hard as we can to prevent it from becoming a one and a half degree world or a two degree world or higher where the impact of climate change goes from the merely devastating to the truly catastrophic. And, and so I think capitalists have to save the planet. All right, we're on it. So uh, that's, <laughs> that takes us to uh, where I like to start with Tragedy of the Horizons, the title of the famous speech that Mark Carney gave at Lloyd's in London in 2015. Uh, and I mapped to David Attenborough's superb documentary, Our Planet. Let me check. Have you seen that on Netflix yet? I have. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, so he offered up two data points. I've asked my, my guests to, to track three, maybe a bonus one if you want to, on account of what engine number one and, and uh, ExxonMobil are in a relationship. So uh, I've got a commodity uh, data point in there for you. I'm going to ask you 
what your number is, and then I'll compare that to you know, how it's trending today. So in the first year that you got a paycheck, a professional paycheck, yeah, what was the world population approximately? Right around 7 billion. Okay. And today it's uh, inching its way towards 8 billion. It's around 7.9 billion today. Right. And then the S&P 500. Was it 1620? Wow. That is crazy. Right now it's around 4,300-ish. And carbon dioxide in parts per million. 400. Wow. Yeah. Already well over 350, hey? So uh, it's around 415. I've seen it pop up to 417, 419 across uh, the summer period measured in, in Hawaii. Uh, Michael O'Leary, how does it feel to to hear the numbers of when you first began, first paycheck, and where we are now. How, how, how does that strike you? Well, it's, important we, it's important we really stare reality in the face with some of these things. You know, I, I um, probably some of your listeners might have read Bill Gates's book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. It's kind of four way into climate writing. I think one thing that book does effectively um, is that he enters the question uh, around climate change with the premise that development is the goal uh, and that development requires uh, for you know, the billion of people who are still living without reliable electricity, development requires greater use of energy. You know, and, that, and that development is going to have to require that we think about the millions, hundreds of millions of people still living in poverty in places like Indonesia, Nigeria, India, China. And so I think I look at these numbers and I, I, I look forward and think about the task we have ahead of us is both rapidly decarbonizing our economy at the same time, they're also developing right. the global economy. And one of the things that really sticks out about these numbers um, is, you know, in some cases, you know, carbon dioxide, world population, you know, they've changed obviously since I started my career. The one that's changed most remarkably is the valuation of the S&P 500. Right. right. I mean, truly remarkable. money's free, right? And I think... Yeah, and, and I think this is, um, when you poll the average American, you know, is the financial system good for the world or bad for the world? You know, something like two thirds of Americans yeah. say the financial system is bad for the world. And I think this is, um, to your first question on whether capitalists can, can save the planet, in some ways, this is what we're running up against, is this feeling of disconnection between the financial sector, you know, the way we save, the way we invest from the world from the outcomes we actually care about around development and poverty and right. especially around climate. Yeah, I, I was really proud of someone uh, who's close to me works in wealth management. And, uh, you know, uh, she's one of my long term people I'm looking to influence, as I look to influence wherever I can. And she was having a conversation with one of her colleagues, some news headline. And she asked the colleague, yeah, but what kind of capitalism? And they had a very interesting conversation in a way, you know, two, three, ten years ago, that wouldldn't have happened. Right, let's jump to yeah, what do you, what do you make of um, you know, do you use the, the term the phrase stakeholder capitalism? Have you adopted I, that term? I do in, in, in the right kind of audience, some people don't kind of map to that, but yeah, yeah, there's a piece of that. Hmm. Uh, for me, it's more clear to kind of point out the current kind of bad model, the I call it either capricious capitalism. <laughs> demonstrating my you know, law student Latin roots, or just frankly call it crony capitalism. Mm. But, yeah, so mm. making it clear that they're versions of capitalism. But let's jump to a fast espresso shot question number one. These are very fast, quick idea. Question number one, what is your earliest memory of investing? 
I think my entry to investing would have been back in high school. I don't know why I picked it up. But I picked up uh, a random walk down Wall Street, Burton Mackiel book. Wow. I don't were know you how late, it is. Were you late for something? Why did you pick up that book? No, the school library, something. But it was my introduction to uh, to the world of investing. I think I read that in some uh, a book or two by Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it's amazing how influential whatever you read when you're 17 is. Yeah. Uh, I think it really has informed a lot of the way that I've approached the markets with you know a degree of skepticism around active management, what it takes to actually generate alpha degree of skepticism around who the financial industry is serving. And I think all of that has probably served me well yeah. as I've entered active management, right. as I've entered the financial system. And what is your philosophy of investing in one short sentence? The, the, I think my approach would be to say, um, to focus on the impact that investing has. And so um, the way we invest today determines what our world will look like tomorrow. Uh, the way companies invest today will determine what the company looks like tomorrow, that essentially investing is the decisions, investing is about the decisions that we make as individuals, as investors, as a society, that then determine our future. Got it. What switched you on to environment, social, and governance factors? I was, uh, so I was at Bain Capital on the private equity side, doing kind of traditional private equity investing. When the former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, left office, he joined our firm to launch an impact fund. And uh, I joined him in that effort and helping to build out uh, Bain Capital Double Impact, what became Bain Capital's impact fund. And I think what really switched me on is uh, Governor Patrick would always talk about rejecting the trade-off mentality, this idea you can't go, you know, you can't do well and do good, this idea you have to choose, you know, am I going to maximize income or am I going to try and have impact on the world? I think that um, calling out the false choices we have, calling out the trade, you know, how false these trade-offs are. I think that's really what started me in thinking about all of this. Excellent. Um, how do you choose to define sustainable investment or investing with ESG factors in less than 30 words? Less than 30 words. Um, it'd be investing with a recognition that impact matters. Seven, impact okay. matters. And I'll just Nailed say this. impact matters to, to stakeholders. Obviously it matters to society. It also matters to shareholders. These are economic issues ultimately. Nailed it. And last of the first espresso shot questions, what is your biggest investing mistake so far? Hmm. I think the one I really regret is, uh, is I remember back when we were first launching Bain Capital's Impact Fund. And one of the first deals we looked at was a, um, an ESG ratings provider. It was kind of a pure play ESG ratings provider. And, uh, and I remember putting, I was um, uh, doing a lot of the analysis for the potential investment. And, um, and I remember making all these charts about the growth and use of ESG data, ESG ratings. And, um, and I think part of the argument I was making was, you know, how much, how much faster could it grow? You know, how, how much more could ESG right. data right. grow? And little did I know that we were still at the very, very early yeah. stages of that growth curve. I mean, you know, exponential curves look exponential, you know, and then you zoom yeah. out and they look even more exponential. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and I think, I'm, I don't know exactly what happened to the company, but I'm sure that whoever did end up buying that one did quite well. You make me think, I, I do want to do a segment at some point on like where they're now. Like, I love those stories, you know, sports stories often and what have you. And, yeah. uh, you know, the deals that got away, maybe, maybe they'll well, fold it into another series. All right, I think we... in, a, in a long bull market, probably, you know, there's a lot of regrets of I should have 
bought, yeah. I should have bought, I should have bought. And then at some point when the market turns, we're in a bear market, people say, oh, I should have sold, I should have sold, I yeah. should have sold. <laughs> Always that. Well, I do know my biggest regret is I, I bought the product, not the stock. I love my uh -huh. EV. It's fantastic. It got me here safely. It drives itself. But yeah, what it could have, should have, right? Mm. Um, all right, let's go to deep dive one. Uh, as always, I say to my guests, uh, we got two uh, boundaries. One is don't be boring, which I know you're not. And the other is don't get fired, right? So we're trying to stay between those two lines. You'll do a great job. Uh, deep dive number one, introduction. Simple question. What does your title mean? Managing director? And what is not your job? My focus at edge number one is on the work we do with companies, uh, how we work with companies to drive positive value, that's value for workers and customers and communities and the environment and value for shareholders. So a big part of my focus is then in thinking about the work we do um, to improve the value of the companies in our portfolio. And it's um, that's across two parts of what Edge Number One does. That's on the one hand through a, through a concentrated equity fund but it's also through a diversified index fund that we launched, um, something called the Transform 500 ETF with a ticker vote, uh, which is a product that uh, I really joined engine number one to, to build. Um, and, uh, and so one I'm very proud of, and, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but, but that's where my focus really lies is in, uh, in helping to build that product and then in the engagement and voting work we do at companies. Got it. And why is your firm described this way? And I quote, uh, is from your website. Uh, Engine number one is an investment firm purpose-built to create long-term value by driving positive impact through active ownership. Why is it described that way? Yeah, we're careful, uh, very careful about doing that. I mean, it's, whenever you put together kind of a mission statement or, or yeah. a short description like that, every word matters. Um, there's a couple of things I'll just call out, three terms, the long-term value, the positive impact and the, and the through active ownership. And in many ways, those three together encapsulate a lot of our strategy and our thesis. The idea is that we can create long-term value as investors. You know, and this is value the way it's traditionally defined is value for our investors. Uh, but that the way we are doing it is through driving positive impact. So we believe deeply as a firm, social issues, environmental issues are economic issues. And the companies that focus more on the value they deliver to their stakeholders will better be able to deliver value to their shareholders as well. Uh, and then the last part of that is that the way we do that, I think some, especially in the public markets, investors really focus on buy-sell decisions, you know, what's in the portfolio, and ignore sometimes the ownership decisions of how they vote shares at annual meetings, how they engage with companies that they own. We believe uh, quite strongly that if you want to have impact as a public markets investor, it has to be not through whether you buy or sell a stock, but what you do as an active owner. Got it. Um, so let me ask quickly, I was going to ask elsewhere, we're covering it now. When you say long term, what do you mean? So when, when I did some of the early work on private equity investing in emerging markets, a lot of that money is coming from development financing institutions, global um, uh, EM private equity is putting that to work. They use model two growth capital, not model one financial engineering they're looking at 10 years plus one plus one maybe 12 years at max before they have to exit and then you know there's two parts to the business you, you know, so far at least as i understand you know there's as you said the etf uh which is you would one could argue maybe a perpetuity right because it's, it's just tracking um and then you've got the private equity so when you say long term 
what, what what's the number? Hmm. Yeah, because people often point to the kind of average uh, holding period stats in the U.S. that have gone down from something like you know, seven years in the 1960s, right. seven years out of seven months today, you know, this quarterly focus, you know, trading in and out. Uh, we, as you said, through vote, through our index fund, we are essentially permanent owners of the companies we invest in. Um, through the other funds at our firm, we are long-term investors, you know, measure not in weeks or months, but in years. Um, and, and I think importantly, you get to a point, I mean, you know this from when you build out a financial model, you get to a point where um, your interests essentially align with an infinite time horizon. You know, once you push out far enough right. and the decisions you make, you're no longer about maximizing quarterly earnings. You're about how do we maximize the terminal value of this business, the valuation multiple of this business. That's the strategy that, that we are thinking on timescales that are long enough that you be making the same decisions whether you own the stock for 100 years or for 10 years or for two years. Got it. Um, and if we have to simplify the investment value chain, um, I, I like to you know make my podcast both accessible to people, but you know specialists are listening to. But this is one that tries to simplify. So if we look at the investment value chain, and I'm trying to kind of point to the role that you and your firm play. So you know someone owns the money, or some institution owns the money. Uh, someone's gathering the assets. Someone's doing the investment research. Someone's making investment decisions. And, and people are influencing that whole investment ecosystem. But which, which piece would you be? You know, we, we make the investment decisions. We're an asset manager, collects assets from others. That's retail investors, you know, mom and pop investors, but also big institutional investors like pension funds or endowments. And then with that money, we make investing decisions. We invest it into companies um, either through an index fund or through an active fund. Uh, but I love the way you kind of draw that out. One thing I often talk about uh, is my mother is a public school teacher. She's now elementary school principal and is a member of a pension. And so right. you know, her retirement, you think about the long chain that sits between yeah. her her interests and the companies that are owned on her behalf. And it goes through a multi-billion dollar pension that's investing in multi-billion dollar asset managers that are investing in dozens or hundreds of multi-billion dollar companies. And it's this long chain that separates out you know the end investor my mother from mm. the companies that are actually making decisions i think part of what's gone wrong in capitalism over the last half century or longer um, is this disconnection this abstraction of kind of financialized capitalism where if you were a local small business owner you know you make decisions that reflect the local concerns you know it's your neighbors you're hiring or firing or you're selling to it's your river you might be polluting you kind of lose that when you get to this mm. disintermediate, this highly intermediated form of capitalism we have right now. So I like the way you outlined that. And and so that makes me want to uh, touch quickly on your book, and I, I think we'll do this across the um, across the podcast. It's the subtitle is the rise of citizen capitalism, right? And um, in a way, I can hear as you explaining or you mapping to the investor value chain, and you explaining from the point of view of your mom. I, I for me, that's very powerful, right? Out of, out of law school, I was running pension funds back in South Africa. I mean, some of my most humbling moments were looking pensioners in the eye or retirement fund participants in the eye and saying, you know, this is what the market has done. And, you know, that this is now the impact on the check that you're going to get every month. And oh, by the way, rule number one, 
those checks have to arrive on time on the 25th of the month, which is how we are running, right? So, you know, the humans at the end of this chain of money, yeah? So, so in some way, when you were writing the book, were you picturing your mom? Hmm. There's a, a very common way of, of telling the story of what's gone wrong with capitalism, where you say, um, you know, it's shareholders versus stakeholders. And over the last 50 years, shareholders have been winning at the expense of stakeholders. And it loses sight of who shareholders really are, who most shareholders are. And in America, there's 140 million people who own stock, either directly or indirectly through right. mutual funds, pension funds, uh, of which my mom is one. You think about who, what's in the interest of those 140 million people. The average shareholder in America is 51 years old, has $65,000 in a 401k account. You know, they're, they came and access that money without a penalty for 15 years. They'll be hoping to live off that money for maybe 10, 20, 30 years after that. They're broadly diversified. If you're invested in a target date retirement fund, you probably own 11,000 stocks, you know, 15,000 bonds. So you say, well, what's in the best interest of the average shareholder? The average shareholder, I think, looks much more like you, your friends, your parents, your grandparents, you know, that, that's who capitalism should be serving mm. um, when we think about, you know, the interests of, of shareholders um, and is not served when you're trying to maximize profits at a single company in a single quarter. Got it. Um, okay, back to some simple elements of the business of investment now. Mm. Uh, I know how to buy a cup of coffee, a movie, an airline ticket, even an electric vehicle. How does one buy one of you? Mm. Mm. You know, it depends. So, you know, two different sides of the business. Um, if you want to invest in a hedge fund anywhere, um, if you want to invest in a hedge fund, for the most part, you've got to be ultra high net worth or an institutional investor, like a pension fund or a endowment or a foundation. What's uh, the number now for, for ultra? Is that 10? Is that one? Oh my, I don't know the official line. Yeah. 10, 100? I mean, I, I think the really the way to um, think about it is if you've got someone, if you're paying someone else to manage your money, um, and especially if your name is on the door, uh, you've yeah. got enough. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. But, but so this is actually a really important one, though, because one thing that I've always been frustrated about with the impact investing world is that much of the most exciting work that's happening in sustainable investing, impact investing, is really only available to those ultra high net worth individuals, people with family offices, or these institutional investors. And if you're just a retail investor who cares, where do you go? You know, you can't go to a big asset manager like BlackRock or uh, sorry, uh, Blackstone or or um, Bain Capital, or TPG, or um, or Generation Investment Management, you know Al Gore, David Blood's right. fund. Right. You can access all that exciting work that's happening. And so, one thing that we try to do with Engine Number One is through this product, this ETF, this Transform 500 ETF, which we'll talk about. Uh, that product is available to anyone on any right. retail trading platform, <clears throat> whether it's Robinhood or otherwise. Sure. You just search for the ticker symbol Vote. And anyone can buy it. You know, a share costs $50. A lot of places you can buy a fractional share. And yeah. in that way, we're really able to bring what we think is the most exciting um, uh, work happening in impact investing and bring it to everyone, no matter how big or how small anyone can be part of that. Hmm. And, and, but you can't buy a slice of the private stuff, right? That you need, you need to be. Yeah, the way, I, and I guess a lot of this comes out from like the Great Depression. You know, the SEC regulates these things yeah. so strictly. So if you want to have something that's available to the public, you have to issue it as a mutual fund or as an right. ETF. Right. That's what we're structured as. 
Um, and then for the private vehicles, you have to be a qualified investor. And that's yeah. where you get into the high yeah. net worth. There was a while when uh, uh, pipes, private investment and public equity, uh, private equity was a thing, uh, but I, I've lost touch with that now. Well, right now, one thing, one big trend I think you're seeing is this democratization of a lot of asset classes. I don't know if it's what I'm Googling or what, but all, when it gets advertised to me all the time are um, ways, you know, new companies that allow you to invest in wine as an asset class, invest right. in art as an asset class. Yeah, I wouldn't personally put my money into a lot of these things yeah. uh, or, you know, a million different yeah. crypto trading platforms. Um, but I think it is a broader trend of this idea of like, bring it to the people, you know, let the people yeah. make their own investing decisions. Yeah, yeah. leave it to the uh, wealth magazines to tell you a quarter after it would have been a great idea that you should have bought some sports cards or a car or something, right? Yeah, right. They'll find the widget that the one thing that's returned a thousand percent that you should have invested in. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, uh, let's move on. Um, a, a very simple question, and I had this posed to me by a professor at Wharton, who, to my <laughs> surprise, I had to kind of pitch on the importance of ESG factors in 2021, nevertheless. Uh, the question was put back to me was, well, what is the problem that investing and in integrating ESG factors is trying to solve? How would you answer that? Hmm. I think there's two ways, two approaches you can answer with this. First is, um, you know, the, when we were launching Bain Capital's Impact Fund, the question we got <clears throat> more than any other was um, this question around trade-off. You know, they say, um, Traditional finance, people who've worked in you know, hedge funds, private equity, mutual funds, whatever it might be, have spent their entire career trying to maximize a single variable, risk-adjusted return. You know, once you start talking about ESG and sustainable investing, impact investing, you're now adding in all these other constraints. You know, you're now adding in um, of these, all these other goals. I can't invest here. I'm trying to also affect this change. That must somehow be coming out uh, of the pocket of investors. If everyone else is trying to maximize one variable, you're now the multivariate equation. You know, how, how can you do that? And um, I think one thing that that misses uh, is it misses that when you're an investor, you're not, you know, yes, there is some final number that you're hoping to be judged by. Hmm. Um, but the way you get there is never by maximizing that number directly. It's always, you know, the, the, the internal rate of return in our financial models is always the, out, the outcome. But there's all these other inputs that you're putting into it. You know, what if you think about um, if you owned a local bar and you're trying to think about how do I maximize profits, what you're really doing every day is you're making a thousand other decisions on who am I going to hire? Am I going to have any you know, sales today? You know, what hours am I going to be working? Am I going to invest a little more money to spruce up the joint? You know, you're making a thousand micro decisions that ultimately you think through some complicated theory of change will lead to maximizing that final number. All to me, all ESG investing is, is it's saying we're taking one complex multivariate equation and now we're, we're saying it's a slightly different complex multivariate equation that recognizes that some of the most important variables are going to be social and environmental in nature. That you can't maximize uh, profits today if you're not focused on the impact your company's having on the environment, on climate change, on your workers, on your customers. Um, and so this idea of a, of a trade-off kind of misunderstands you know, what, what investors actually do, what business leaders actually do every day. So I'd say one, one response that Warren Professor would be, it is just a better way to invest. Um, it is, a, it is um, a better answer to the age-old question of how do you maximize risk-adjusted returns. The second one, and I think one that probably resonates better with the public, 
is it's also just a better way to operate in society as a company. You know, companies are having massive impact every day. Um, you know, the Fortune 500 has something like $23 trillion of sales across it. I mean, th these, are, these are the companies that are determining our world. Um, and so if we care about the outcomes like um, gender pay disparities, racial equity, human rights and supply chains, the only way we can really move the needle on a lot of these problems is by going to companies um, and, and seeing what effect companies are having and seeing how we can change it. I think in either case, you're, you're led to the same conclusion, which is investors need to be focused more on ESG sustainability if they want to invest better, if they want to build better companies for the world. And so, so building on that, uh, your CEO, Jennifer uh, Grancio, I'm not sure if I pronounced that mm -hmm. correctly. Um, right. she, was, she was interviewed by Yahoo Finance recently, and she said, you know, we're an activist, uh, but we consider ourselves to be working constructively with companies. And she said, uh, I'm quoting, taking ESG and sustainability and turning it in, into dollars and cents. So um, I'm building to the, to the point of question. So George Seraphim uh, et al. have got a 2018 paper where they put out you know, that uh, environmental, social and governance factors can have an um, impact. There must be uh, both at the strategy level and the at the operational level, but you've got to build them into what you're doing. They can't be on the side. But he makes a remarkable um, statement in one paragraph, and I use this when I'm teaching at Villanova, and I'll be using it when I'm teaching at Harvard in the new year, is he says, setting aside the moral case, right? So, and, and you know, I understand the importance, and I've spent decades in making, you know, fighting different fights, trying to make the case for integrating environment, social, and governance factors. But the, if the market's not pricing correctly, we can't make the argument in dollars and cents. So, you know, the classic argument, I think you've said this on previous interviews, that you know, humans aren't reflected on the balance sheet, they're only reflected on the income statement, right? As a negative. Um, so where have you considered, and I understand this is quite a philosophical question, but I think you can go there, is what do you do about, or how, how do you frame ESG factors that maybe they'll never be an, a, an accurate and precise and fair market price? Well, I think the, the reason why the, um, the George Seraphim and others you know, have been so focused on trying to make, you're trying to show the economic signal that comes through. And the reason why there's so much focus here is because a lot of the roots of this movement are not economic in nature. Uh, I think a lot of the issue movement, especially in the public markets, traces its lineage back to divestment movement, the divestment movement around apartheid uh, in South Africa, for instance, but also all the way back to religious exclusions. You know, the Quakers 400 years ago in Pennsylvania refusing to hold um, any investments in things related to slavery or to war. Uh, not because, you know, the Quakers had an investment thesis on you know, what was going to happen to those industries, but for religious reasons, you know, around, um, you know the moral yep. purity of their portfolio. And I think because of that, um, in some ways, the sector is constantly trying to, um, it's almost like it's got a chip on its shoulder, constantly trying to say, oh, but it's not just morals and values, like it's about dollars and cents. Um, similar on, in the private side, you know, impact investing, its roots come from things like micro lending in India, Grameen Bank, hmm. um, and the effective philanthropy movement. And so similarly, because a lot of impact investing is 
concessionary in nature, you know, its impact comes from being willing to charge a lower rate of interest or accept a lower rate of return. The impact investors who are not trying to do that, who think they can actually generate alpha by focusing on impact, are constantly trying to, you know, make the case. You know, the question you bring up, though, is a great one, is all right, this might be the case in some areas. Um, organic fruits and vegetables, for instance, you know, reliably charge a 5, 10, 15% premium yep. to non-organic. And so this is an area where um, for folks who believe in organic farming, customers have been demonstrably willing to spend more as a result. Are customers willing to spend more from a company that's employee-owned? No, unclear. Maybe. I mean, some companies will put it on their label and, uh, and hope that that becomes a you know, real um, benefit to them. I think, but though the, the strongest case here would be around uh, carbon emissions, where carbon is as pure an externality as you could almost create. You know, it is totally unpriced to, to emit carbon to the atmosphere. And so in many ways, without a, a carbon tax or carbon price, companies have every economic incentive to continue to emit. And yet what we have seen over the last, especially over the last few years, mm. um, and just accelerating today, is this huge push from consumers, huge push from employees, huge push from um, increasingly governments, from up and down the supply chain for companies to essentially internalize what is a pure externality and set net zero targets and invest in decarbonizing of supply chains. And so I think that case gives me hope that across all these different things that we talk about as ESG, issues related to workers, um, you know, humans on the balance sheet, that all these things over time, if we as consumers, employees, voters, investors are reflecting our values and our decisions, that then sets the parameters of what profitable business strategy is. And so, um, and so I think you know, increasingly going forward, we'll see these things continue to become more and more economic. The economic issues, Social issues are economic issues. Environmental issues are economic issues. Got it. So on the Trillions podcast, uh, Joel Weber and uh, Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg have a great podcast for the exchange traded fund, the ETF audience. Check it out. They've had me on a few times. Um, one of their favorite tests is to check on, well, what's your ESG view on Amazon or Facebook? That's, that's kind of where they go to, right? Um, I'm currently in an ongoing dispute on Twitter with Eric about ExxonMobil and what you do about fossil fuels. So that's fun to watch uh, in the public domain. Um, we know that the market value of technology mega caps have touched, uh, I think it was 10 trillion US dollars in July 2020, roughly 50% of the available market cap. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And we know people have talked about data as the, the next oil, right? Big data becomes big oil. Uh, and you know, the recent Wall Street Journal uh, coverage on what Facebook and Instagram know about themselves and how it's good or not good for the humans who are using that. How do you, how do you tackle, and, and I appreciate compliance reasons, maybe you can't talk about stuff that's in your, on the private side, but you know, you're tracking the S&P 500, it is what it is. So I'm yeah. assuming you can at least talk in, in some way. So how do you help focus on what are the key issues that uh, you know, ABC company needs to be looking at given their ec economic impact, the influence they have on these consumers, these humans. Um, uh, how do you try and decide on well, what ESG factors are important? Do you, you know, it does, does it matter as much that there's a employee philanthropy day versus 
or how is your algorithm treating people and putting stuff in front of them and or deciding what they will or will not get? Mm. Yeah, so I think this is actually one of the big critiques of a lot of ESG investing today. Because if you look at many of the largest ESG funds and you look at what are their top holdings, big tech companies like Facebook or Amazon or Apple or, or Alphabet, the big tech companies tend to score very well on ESG, partly because they are just inherently low carbon and climate is such a big component of ESG ratings, partly because they are um, profitable enough, big enough, they can hire big sustainability teams, um, you know, can put in place all the right sets of practices that get them good ratings, partly because they're in a fierce, fierce war for tech talent. And one way you can win is by being able to reflect the values of the talent you're trying to recruit, which is increasingly is um, focused on social and environmental issues. The problem, though, is if you go to the average person on the street and you say, you know, I want to sell you this great new ESG fund that only invests in the best companies in the world that are doing the best things for society and the environment. And they say, oh, wonderful. What are, you know, what's in the fund? And you say, well, the top holdings are Facebook, Amazon, you know, Microsoft, Google. I think people, the average person on the street would be surprised at that um, you know, for exactly the reasons you brought up. And, and it gets at what is really difficult about ESG investing, most ESG investing which is really focused on trying to pick the good guys and exclude the bad guys. I assume this is what your debate on Exxon is. You know, in some ways, it's like, do you, do you hold companies you disagree with? Do you, um, you know, don't, don't you want to kind of follow this Quaker approach of saying, if, I, um, if I'm fighting with all my energy against climate change, why on earth would I hold oil and gas companies in my portfolio and profit from the destruction of the planet that I'm trying to prevent? Right? It's very intuitive in some ways, case. Um, our approach is to say that engagement done right, done to a certain extent, can be much more powerful, a much more direct theory of change than exclusion or divestment. So our focus engine number one is not to say, is Facebook a good or evil company? Our approach is to say, what would make Facebook better as a business? Um, and, and the way we decide on that is to start with the, the you know, important question of what's the biggest impact that Facebook has on society. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of big public companies, they'll focus on their corporate social responsibility programs, all the money they donate. You know, these tech companies will talk about how they're net zero emissions um, and carbon. But ultimately, you know, the biggest impact Facebook is having, just as you said, is through things like you know, the algorithm that they're putting out uh, through the social networks. Um, we, we were in the impact investing world and one of the really frustrating things can be that you, know, you fight tooth and nail on some healthy, sustainable food company. You fight tooth and nail to get it to uh, you know, a million customers. And at the same time, when Taco Bell releases the Doritos Tacos Locos, you know, a taco that has a Dorito as a shell, yeah. it sells 100 million tacos in like yeah. three months. Right? right? Same thing, you fight tooth and nail on some wonderful you know, employee-owned, employee-driven yeah. company. That a single decision Uber makes in its boardroom affects, I don't know, a thousand X. 10,000 X more yeah. workers yeah. than maybe the entire impact investing sector combined. And so the goal has to be, you pick these companies, you don't necessarily cast judgment of their good or evil. You say, what is the biggest impact they're having today? And what can we do as active owners to improve it in ways that we think we'd both be both good for society and long-term good for the company? I've heard you um, uh, speak before about some previous work you'd looked at. I don't know if you touched this on uh, in your bank uh, double impact days, but um, I'm a big fan of co-ops. I'm a big fan of employee ownership. Uh, mm -hmm. I like to align things. It, this has stuck with me since 
was at law school and I used to work at a pizzeria and I was, uh, you know, I was applying, you know, everything I learned, to, uh, learned at uh, you know, business undergrad and now doing law school. And I was looking at these, the chefs and I was thinking, well, how do you motivate the chefs, right? If they need a piece of the revenue flow or they need to own a piece of business. Otherwise they are just punching a card, right? And, and uh, you know, I would love, you know, as we kind of wrap this business of investment segment, I'd love to see if you could push the team at engine number one to do something that covers something in that alternative family owned, cooperative, employee owned, something in that space that's investable and, and looking to promote uh, ESG factors. Is that possible? Could that be well, in your mind? You, you, you know, I am um, a big fan of those sorts of structures. How do you give employees a real stake? I mean, part of it is just this recognition um, that you know, we in the investing world, in the white collar world, you know, we want to be motivated by having a piece of the success that we're helping to create. All people are like that. You know, no one is any right. day. Everyone wants to, you know, if they're going to help create value for, for a company, they want to be able to uh, participate in that. And, um, and, you know, I think going back to this question, the trade-off, one example that people sometimes point to is the income statement, as you said. And they say, you know, if I increase wages for workers or give workers a stake in my my company or grant them stock or something. If that is truly a transfer of dollars from net income up to SGNA, up to um, right. you know, personnel expense. And it's like it's such an obvious trade-off. You can see it right there right. on the income statement. The reality though is it is no more a trade-off than say um, R&D is a trade-off. Like R&D for sure is a trade-off of do I take cash today or do I invest in R&D? It is a trade-off you're looking at on a one quarter to quarter basis. Mm -hmm. But the moment you extend out the time horizon, recognize R&D is not a cost. R&D is an investment. Sure. It could be a good yeah. investment or a bad investment. Right. And, you know, it's worth right. doing the analysis, but it's an investment. Right. And workers, the exact same. And, and, and to your point here, you know, any sort of structure that gets workers um, better compensated, more involved, more empowered, more motivated, that is an investment. Could be good or bad depending on how you do it, what the company is, but it, it should be thought of that way. It's not a, it's not a trade-off, it's an investment. Got it. Um, I want to pick up uh, another few little uh, uh, pieces in deep dive one, and, and then we'll move to Espresso Shot 2. Um, I've seen engine number one posting jobs uh, for data science, compliance, legal skills. Excellent. You know, that means you, you're bulking up, obviously. Um, I'm curious, because there's a bit of a hiring frenzy, and everyone and their dog claims to be ESG specialists nowadays, but are you hiring for ESG talent? How are you doing the ESG piece, what vendors are you using? How does that function happen? Yeah, there is a huge risk in the ESG movement, especially when traditional firms or traditional investors are trying to become more ESG, yeah. that essentially you kind of append on ESG into an ongoing process. Right. So you, know, you have this 80 page investment deck going through everything about the company. And then at the very end, you, you know, staple on three pages with the MSCI ESG rating right. or something. Right? Yeah. You say, oh, and now we've integrated yeah. ESG. I've and, seen and, those and, prospectuses. Yes, I have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you see it a lot right now. A lot of firms are converting to become ESG. You know, they're fledgling as traditional investment funds. They convert right. to ESG and all of a sudden they're seeing inflows. Um, and the same is risk with personnel. That If you bring in, you've got a traditional investment team and you bring in a new head of ESG, then whenever that person speaks to the investment committee, everyone checks their phones. Right? You know, they don't have real sway because they're not the investor. You know, they're the yeah. ESG side. They're worried about risk mitigation or something else. And so the approach that is number one, we are all impact investors. You know, the hedge fund analyst, 
that is deciding whether to invest in a company is the person who is doing ESG analysis because we believe that ESG analysis is crucial to understanding the risk and opportunity and, and growth that a company can be facing. And so you, know, you talk about like the data science team, our data science team, what data are they sciencing? You know, what data are they analyzing? ESG data. You yeah. know? And so, and we're, and we're trying as much as possible. You might've mentioned our, our total value framework, yeah. all this is available yeah. on our website, engine1.com. Um, but you know, what we were trying to do as much as possible is get down to the raw numbers, you know, carbon emissions, workforce diversity stats, land use, recycling rates, you know, the raw numbers, throw out the ESG rankings, throw the ESG ratings, get to these raw numbers and make it actionable in the investing process, the engagement process, how we're voting our shares so that all of us are doing ESG analysis because all of us agree and believe that this is just critical to being a good investor. Yeah. Um, yeah. On that frame of the total value framework, that white paper came out in September. Um, I, I think uh, Professor Wittold Heinz at Wharton helped you with that. Um, or at least he, he was credited somewhere. I, I, I do want to tease him with a sparkle in my eye that it came across a little bit as uh, I, I, I read a little bit of Professor language in there. So I'm going to tease him a bit on that. Mm. Um, what I couldn't get to, and maybe, you know, this is your black box you can't share to. Uh, share too much on but the the actual mechanics of how this total value framework is playing out i mean is there an academic paper is there have you sent something to the patent office can you mm. give us a bit more obviously you know without getting yourself fired yeah no no, no. yes yeah, so let me describe a, what we call our total value framework in, um, in as simple way as i can which is uh, if you think about the value a company creates the first part of that value, most traditional, easiest to understand is the value it creates for shareholders. You could measure that in net income every year. You can measure that in dividends they send out to shareholders every year. That is the amount of shareholder value a company creates. But if you're trying to take a composite view of a company, you should then also add in or detract the other sources of value that a company creates for other stakeholders. So living wages to its workers or negative value it's provided to the environment through things like carbon emissions. You start with shareholder value, then add in and subtract all these other elements of value that a company creates or destroys for its stakeholders. And the end of that is the total value that a company creates or destroys for all of society, shareholders and stakeholders together. And what we find when we try and do this both systematically across hundreds of companies with the data that's available, or in a, a more ad hoc way at a specific company, uh, where we can go you know, much deeper and, and try and estimate a lot of the data that's not currently reported, we find is that this is ex uh, an extremely um, helpful way of trying to understand what are the risks and opportunities facing any given business. That you think about um, uh, regulatory risk to a company, you know, one red flag that, that should concern um, any investor that a company is going to have negative regulatory risk going forward is if the company has a lot of negative externalities on its local community or, or on the environment. You know, so two companies otherwise equal creating the same amount of shareholder value today, but one that does so in a business model that has a lot of negative externalities that we can measure, and one that has a lot of positive externalities we can measure, those are not equal businesses. And the total value framework is our attempt to be able to see that. It's a you know internal investment process. It's the way we think about investing. It's not something we're selling to others or, or, or trying to patent in any way. Uh, it's the way we think about how do we, you know, in some ways integrate ESG in a way that is actually um, fully being reflected in the investing models that we build and, and the, um, 
and the price targets that we're setting. And let me be among the first of uh, my hand up in, in terms of writing a case study. I think we need a case study in the public domain. When, when you feel comfortable doing that, we'll get some good academics to write, maybe a handful of case studies. But I want to land deep dive one now, getting to a number. Uh, you've, uh, you referenced before how engine number one looks to track impacts, not activities, and looking for the delta of before and after. And for example, applying the social cost of, of carbon. I think that's still, I think the new regime has put that in the US around $50 um, uh, per ton. Um, but, but more importantly to this piece, and this ties to your comments earlier about climate pollution, I'd like to ask this question of all my guests. Simple data question. What actual or shadow price for CO2 equivalent per ton does your firm use internally for your own operations? And what price is in your portfolio? We use 112 right now, recognizing that $112 per ton, I mean, you double click on that and triple click and quadruple click, this is based off of huge ranges of estimates as to the likelihood uh, of different climate outcomes, what will happen in each outcome. and so. You know, for us, it's like all modeling. You know, like the only thing when I used to um, build a lot of models in capital, you know, the only thing I could say with certainty was that the model was going to be wrong. Yeah. Right. So the goal was never to say like, oh, we are accurately predicting what's going to happen to this business if we invest. It was always around trying to understand what are the key drivers of this business. Right. What are the and the direction, right? You you got to get the direction. That's what you're trying to the find. Direction and the magnitude in yeah. some way. Yeah. And that and that's what we're trying to do with whether it's one twelve. We put wide error bands around that, you know, what right. if we were 50, what if we were 200, all of it's trying to tell us in some way, and this is the benefit of putting dollar values against things, is, um, you know, there's this big debate, a big debate, big interest around materiality, you know, what's material to different companies, right. you got something like SASB, the materiality map, right. they're trying to say for different sectors, here's what yeah. ESG factors matter most. When you put a dollar value against something, even an estimate with wide error bands, materiality falls out naturally. As you can right. see that, I mean, no surprise when we run our total value framework across you know, the first 12 metrics that we can reliably measure across hundreds of companies, the one that matters the most in most businesses is carbon emissions. Mm. No surprise, you know, but, but when you put dollar value estimates against these things, you can actually see that quantitatively. And then you can compare it to the amount of profits a company generates or or revenue company generates and see is this material, how material to, to, to this business is this factor. And, and you get to what are in many cases intuitive results, which is if I'm an investor in Facebook, I don't really care what their carbon emissions are. You know, I care as much as I care about any carbon emissions, which is, you know, less is better. And I'm glad that they're setting that zero right. and all that. But as an impact investor, my focus should not be on how do I make Facebook 10% more environmentally sound. It should be uh, you know, on the social impact side. Got it. And, and just quickly on, on SASB, uh, are you using SASB? And when do you say, no, these are definitely the two most material factors because SASB in a way is kind of polled stakeholders, stakeholder number one being investors, of course. Um, but, you know, some people look at SASB and say, you know what, this doesn't fit my unique approach to looking at the investment case. So it's nice to know, and I'll maybe cover that ground, but there's a far more material factor that people aren't seeing. How do you yeah, set we, we absolutely look at SASB. You know, we're assessing new companies and trying to figure out where we should be doing more research. We use SASB. Um, you know, as I mentioned, our total value framework, the way we try and look at companies, in many ways, materiality falls out from the bottom when you, you know, put dollar values on different impacts and externalities. 
Um, but I think SASB and what they've been able to accomplish and the way they've been able to band so many people around a common framework, common understanding of materiality, we are big um, advocates for. Got it. You are listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing strategy and sustainability. 您现在收听的是 ESG 和咖啡时间，投资策略和可持续发展。Fast espresso shot question set two. Are you ready? Let's do it. Right. Question one. What app is Michael most likely to be viewing on his smartphone while waiting in line?、Uh, while we're at our coffee shop, I'm at IXV down in Brooklyn.、Uh, news apps. I've got news. All right. Time, journal, FT. Constant、right. scrolling through. You, you like the diversity of、uh, political, cultural views. That's important, right?、Mm. Um, what book did you enjoy reading recently? You read, so、uh, Elizabeth Colbert, who、uh, writes for the New Yorker and, and wrote *The Sixth Extinction*, which is a really popular book. Her follow-up is called *Under a White Sky*, which is、um, about how humanity has engineered its way into messes and now trying to engineer its way out、huh. on climate, on a whole host of ecological issues. Highly recommend. Okay,、uh, what is the best kind of pie? Blueberry. That is the correct answer, and you're only <laughs> the second person to get that. Well done.、Um, um, what is your favorite movie or on-screen moment that relates to the world of investing? Oh, I love it. I so you know my career. I came of age,、um, you know, coming out of the Great Recession. So、um, you know, read The Big Short, watched The Big Short. I, one scene I love from The Big Short. Is when they're、um, in Florida. When they actually, I think it's Florida. Maybe it's Arizona.、Yeah. And they you know, fly down to actually see the houses. Yeah. That are, yeah. yeah.、Okay. And what's so important about it to me is like the financial system has gotten so abstract.、Right. You know, you're buying derivatives and、um, CDOs. It's it's easy to forget that there is some physical reality at the end、yeah. of all of this.、Um, and、uh, and that's true. When you're talking about. Collateralized debt obligations. It's true in the ESG world that ultimately what matters are the outcomes, the ones actually have not the ratings, not the investment funds. What actually matters at the end of all of this is, as you were saying earlier, is the pensioner getting enough pension income to to、uh, you know live a healthy and, and fruitful retirement, and are are actual outcomes for stakeholders, for people and planet,、um, good. Got it. It's as simple as that. Great. And last of especially the shot two as an investment professional, what has been your most meaningful success so far? We wish you much success. What would you say has been most meaningful to you so far?、Uh, most meaningful to me, I think,、um, you know, as an investor, you get so deep in the weeds on your particular investments, your particular strategy.、Um, I think very、uh, fulfilling was the opportunity to be able to take a year off work on. My book, Accountable: The Rise of Citizen Capitalism, with my co-author Warren Baldmanis, who I used to work with at Bain Capital, and, and now leads Two Sigma's Impact Fund, and be able to take a big step back and kind of survey: here's where we were doing our work in the impact investing field, and here's how that relates to the divestment movement and the CSR and ESG, and, and what's trying to happen on the government regulatory side, and fit these pieces together. You know, it's, it's most usually in a normal job. You know, you look back over a year and It was split into a million different spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations and Zoom calls. And one of the fulfilling things about、um, about writing is that you know all that year ends up in a single, you know, eight by ten by two inch object. Right. right. And, and、uh, so I feel very lucky to have had that experience. Yeah. No. Congratulations. And uh, uh, it, it was a good read.、Um, 
so I'll, I'll look to, to, to reference that a bit later too. So maybe, uh, so moving now to deep dive two, um, opening up again, and maybe this relates to something you wrote in the book, but simple question, maybe hard to answer. Where do investment ideas come from? Yeah, it's so different depending on the strategy. I think where I want to um, really focus on is, if you don't mind, uh, the the, um, the index fund that we launched, um, Vote, which in some ways is a very simple concept. And I want to talk about where the idea for this came from. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's a very simple concept. It's that if most ESG investing focuses on exposure, as we talked about. You know, how do you exclude the oil and gas companies, tobacco manufacturers, ammunitions companies um, to create you know, this morally pure portfolio? And, and my idea was, what if we instead created a fund that held all the 500 companies that um, you know, a big index like the S&P 500 would hold, um, but rather than being an ESG fund by what it held, it was an ESG fund by what it did. So the way it cast its votes annual shareholder meetings, a way to engage with those companies to improve their impact. Um, you know, right now, if you're invested in a uh, kind of a typical run-of-the-mill index fund, oftentimes your votes are being cast against social and environmental proposals on things like carbon disclosure or gender pay parity. So the idea was, what if we create a fund that would take this idea of active ownership and bring it to the retail investor? And I think right now, it's, um, what's so fascinating about working in the ESG movement is uh, it's untested ground. You know, people don't know what's going to be, what the ESG movement will look like three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And so you know, our big idea was, what if instead of focusing the ESG movement on what stocks you hold, we focus it on what you did as an active owner? So uh, a fintech I'm watching out of, uh, out of the UK, out of Bristol, um, is uh, Tumelo, T-U-M-E-L-O. For uh, sure. Uh, Will Morrison and, and Georgia Stewart and, and team. And so this presents an interesting problem or opportunity in a way, which is when you speak about the engagement and you've done your research and you take your view, are you also thinking of going back to, you know, let's assume you have a million customers you know, buying into vote, right, over the next two years. And are you going to be polling them on what they'd like to do? Or is the proposition is like, no, no, we've done the research, we know what to do, just back us. Are you going to do a loop through whoever owns vote? Mm, I mean, you know, what you want to avoid, I think, as an investor always, is you're being stuck in your glass office tower, you know, not interacting with the world except through what's coming through your Bloomberg terminal. Right. I think that's true in any investing, um, but also true, especially when you're talking about an investing style that is focusing on stakeholders. How do you not lift their voice into your approach to investing, especially if you think that the reason why um, focusing on impact matters is because of these stakeholders, including your shareholders, you know, retail investors in, uh, in your ETF, are the ones who are making the purchase decisions and the employee decisions and the voting decisions that will be determining the success or failure of different companies, different strategies. I mean, one thing that, um, that a lot of uh, I think retail investors, the folks who aren't in the financial world don't understand is that big public companies are run like little democratic republics where their shareholders every year elect boards, 
those right. boards then appoint a CEO, almost like a, um, a parliament putting forward a prime minister. Right. Um, and then that CEO executes on strategy. But ultimately that accountability, that responsibility traces back to the shareholders who vote. Uh, and so I think there's a, a, a fair amount of education that still needs to happen of, of shareholders is recognizing that they do have a vote and then recognizing those votes are actually cast on issues that they really care about, you know, the leadership of companies, um, the social environmental impact of companies, and then recognizing that oftentimes either they're not casting their vote because you know, they own a stock directly and they're not paying attention, or if they own it through an investment fund, the votes being cast on their behalf actually directly conflict with their values or with their interests. So there's all these steps Ultimately, we think, um, I mean, Tomello is a um, fantastic example of a company that's trying to reconnect that through line. Going back to my mother, reconnect that through line between the end pensioner and the companies that she or he is invested in. And, uh, and we're very much part of the same fight of how, how do we better reflect the end interests, values, beliefs of, uh, of investors and, and stakeholders in the voting decisions we're making, the engagement decisions we're making. So... So what happens when those a million customers have a slightly different take than your ESG team or your, your yeah. own analysis? There is, um, I was on a, uh, a radio show right after <clears throat> Accountable came out where he was really pressing me and he was saying, you know, is your vision for the world? Is this talking about you know, how values are, are becoming more important in business and reflecting the values of your employees, your customers? He said, you know, is your vision that we'll all be walking down the supermarket aisle and on the left-hand side, you have all the democratic goods, you know, Democrat cereal, Democrat oatmeal. And on the right-hand side, you have all the Republican ones, right? And that we're going you know, we're, we're to have to have these fights. And ultimately, I think what, what we're trying to do through things like the total value framework, through our analysis, is understand better what actually matters to people and, and what matters to our shareholders, matters to other shareholders, and how is that ultimately get reflected in the, the stock price of a company? Um, and in many ways, you know, the more we can root this in economics rather than ideology, the more effective we will be, uh, both in convincing companies to change, convincing other investors to change, and more effective in being able to be good investors, because we're not going to be being swayed by you know, what is the political whim of the moment. We'll be more rooted in the fundamental economics of, of you know, how are customer decisions shifting over time, how are employee decisions shifting? How are investor decisions shifting? Okay, and one other piece on, on just sounding out all, all the ideas, something I really like about Kathy Wood's shop, Arc Invest, I've said this before, is they have kind of an external loop where they shake down the ideas. They have, you know, the regular monthly webinar. Um, the head of research has, has spoken on, a, uh, on the Odd Lots interview and spoken about how he's able to put his, some of our ideas in the public domain and get beaten up and so on. So what, what, are, what do you see as the opportunity or what do you feel you're allowed to do in terms of taking an investment idea and getting externally checked or tested? And, and our very first interview um, on, on the ESGN Coffee podcast with, was with Web uh, Invest, Seb Bilo, and they've actually got an advisory panel who can't undo the investment decision, but they can force them to recheck and re-explain uh, how they come to the investment decision. How do you test your investment ideas? No, I love it. I love it. I, I think the idea of uh, transparency is so critical. One thing we're really focused on is uh, right now, I mean, this was 
mind-blowing to me when I was working on Accountable. Um, so I'd be reading about these proxy fights where a hedge fund was trying to force a breakup of a company, for instance. And the, the crazy thing is, you know, the hedge funds never owned more than three, five, six percent company, right? And so right. it was only ever by the passive or active, active acquiescence of the big asset managers, you know, big firms like Vanguard or BlackRock or State Street, that any of this ever happened. And I'm sitting there as I'm reading this research thinking, you know, I'm invested in a bunch of target date retirement funds, my 401k, bunch of target date retirement funds through these companies. And I have no idea how my share was voted. And then I started Googling around and I can't figure it out. I mean, nowhere do right. I find right. how my shares were voted. And those are my shares, right? I mean, that's my stake yes. in these companies. And so one thing we're trying to do with engine number one is set the bar and transparency so that real time as we're casting votes, people are seeing how those votes are cast. But one trend in the industry is starting to telegraph those votes earlier. You know, and, and I think um, getting back to this idea of you know, getting stakeholder input, stakeholder advisory boards, um, we need to, if, if, our, if our investment thesis, you know, one of our core theses is that impact investing makes sense because you are accurately understanding how public sentiment is changing, what people care about, how those values are being reflected in the decisions that governments are making or, or that, um, that markets are, are, um, are making. We have to be bringing those views in from the moment we start thinking of investment ideas, the moment we start thinking about engagement ideas, all the way through the end. There's no other way to do it. Uh, I mentioned uh, earlier, Kai Rizdon, Marketplace. One of my favorite things is when he calls random people. And one of my favorite uh, interviews was he would call a riverboat captain on the Mississippi and ask him, kind of, how's the economy in your corner of the world? Very big proponent of that, of, of knowing how things are happening in different corners of the US or any you know, uh, state or country. Um, Okay, so uh, a few. I just want to pick up one item on the trade-offs, so-called, of yeah. environmental, social, and governance factors. And for me, a big-ticket one. This one's playing out in South Africa right now. It's just, you know, it, it's been a lot of the focus in Europe is around executive pay, right? And I know that was one of the topics that was presented as part of the Engine One um, uh, uh, activism uh, around Exxon Mobil. Frankly, they could just choose any one of the S and P five hundred, and it's an issue. I would argue, how how do you get at too much executive pay? This I love this as an example because um, if you ask the average worker in America, you know, our CEOs pay too much. Uh, even if, you know, they they all have a vague impression that it's true. You ask them, um, you know, how much more do you think that the yeah. CEO gets paid than the average yeah. worker? And they'll guess something crazy. They'll be like, oh, it must be thirty to one, fifty to one. You, know, you ask them, well, what would be fair? And they say, you know, 15 to one or something. I mean, making the numbers up, but it's something in that range. And right. then you tell them, well, the actual ratio is like 271 to one, right? Like it's it's yeah. so much, the orders of magnitude worse than, than they think it is. Um, and then here's the crazy thing. We all have a right to vote. I mean, it's called say on pay. It came out of the Dodd-Frank legislation following, um, uh, following uh, the financial crisis. And so- we as shareholders can vote to approve executive pay at every public company. Uh, I think it's something like at least every two years, most companies it's every year. And so you, you take, you know, some huge majority of workers think CEOs are paid too much. We have a right to vote on executive pay at every public company. And what's the outcome? The outcome, again, these are rough numbers. You know, I can, we put them in the real numbers in the show notes. The outcome is that like 99% of executive pay packages are approved with like 95% support on average. 
is this crazy disconnect between what workers actually believe and then what's actually being reflected in the decisions from big asset managers. And so this is this is one where it's like, you know, we need new tools, maybe, maybe there's legislative fixes, but we also have some tools right now already through the shareholder democracy of, of shareholder sure. voting that we're not utilizing. That's the sort of thing that vote um, the RTF is trying to take on. Yeah, for me, one of the number one things I want to see happen if ever I'm designing the ESG architecture for, for fund is I want to see separation of chair and CEO. You described kind of those tiered layers. Right. Like it's a huge problem when the person who's chairing the board meeting and that board meeting is the one, you know, job one of a board is to find the CEO. And even if they recuse themselves and, and there's all layers of influence. That's the number one I'm thinking of doing. Let's jump quickly yeah. now to end uh, deep dive two on greenwashing. So I don't know what your view is. I'm going to ask you right now. My view is greenwashing is impacting what we're doing. My question to you is one, do you agree greenwashing is real? And two, is it hurting the work that you at Engine One are trying to do? If you ask the average CEO, like, is serving stakeholders important to you beyond shareholders, you know, serving your workers, communities, nine out of 10 will say yes, right? In many ways, a stakeholder capitalism movement has already won the battle of ideas. You know, everyone will at least pay lip right. service to it. Sure. Problem is that if you ask them, are you satisfied with the job your company is doing right. to serve communities, the environment, all that, 96% will say, yes, I'm satisfied, right? And so I, I think, you know, if I tried to summarize all the work we did around Accountable in a single sentence, it would be something like, you know, 90% of what you read and hear and see out there is hot air, it's marketing, you know, it's BS, it's greenwashing. The 10% that's real, that's fundamental, should give us great hope there's better ways to build companies, better ways to invest, but we got to wade through a lot of um, empty marketing right. to get there. And I think many ways that's going to be the biggest threat facing the movement right now is a lot of people um, have staked their hopes uh, on impact investing, the divestment movement, ESG investing, on the ability to transform companies. If one, three, five years from now, they feel like they've been misled that this whole thing was yeah. hot air. Yeah. Was, they're they're going to go to other tools, other tools. I mean, yeah, I think back to like the Occupy Wall Street movement, yeah. right? Occupy Wall Street was not a movement around, oh, we need to subtly reform companies so the right incentives help mm -hmm. banks, you know, better serve their stakeholders. No, it was, you know, tear it down. And I think um, right now we're in this unique moment where there's enough hope um, and we just can't let the cynicism overtake the hope. Yeah, I, I, think, th I think that's fair. Um You're listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast, hosted by Graham Sinclair. Sie hören den ESG and Coffee podcast. Ihr Gastgeber ist Graham Sinclair. Um, great, let's land uh, Deep Dive 2 with Espresso Shot question set number three. Are you ready? Let's do it. Right, one, do you have a favorite type of oh, tree? Say again? Sorry, we, maybe we'll have to end this out, but you know we only have 10 minutes before we have to jump, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite type of tree and what is it? Um, a great book, Overstory. I don't know if you've come across it. Overstory talks about elm trees and the Dutch elm disease that wiped them all out. Yep. And all that. So I'll go with elm. Great. What one book on investing would you recommend? Oh, I'll have to go all the way back. Um, all the way back to Random Walk Down Wall Street, um, where I started. What is your own retirement fund invested in? 
Uh, well, mostly in hedge number one uh, funds and vote, you know, our ETF and then other, um, other kind of target date retirement funds, you know, not surprising. What would your advice to your 17-year-old self be today? Oh, that is a tricky one. I would say, um, I think you don't realize when you're finishing up high school, how many things you're doing for the last time. You know, I don't, I don't think I realized that it was gonna be the last English class I'd ever take would be mm-hmm. in high school, the last time I would ever you know, live with my family at home. Um, so I'd say enjoy all these things like they'll be your last because they probably will be. All right, that's quite pointed, important. And what is your advice to people seeking to enter the field of ESG and investment today? It would be to take nothing as given. You know, we are still in the early, early innings, early, early stages of this movement. And so I think it's, it's easy to come into a place where you've got all these fancy white papers with fancy frameworks saying, you know, this is what ESG investing is, or this is what impact investing is. Um, and it will change. Uh, and, and people entering the movement today will be uh, the ones to change it. Great. So let's move into the last of the three deep dives. And then uh, we have our final espresso shot question, the Goldilocks question. Um, so, so pick up the critical issues here. I wrote a essay for Greenfin around why 26th of May 2021 matters. I referenced ExxonMobil, Chevron AGMs, and the Royal Dutch Shell judgment that happened in the Netherlands. What do you think investors should learn from that the, the judgment around Shell? And very quickly for the audience that uh, the court said, Shell had to really do stuff, not just talk about doing stuff, and they needed to tell, uh, explain what they were doing between now and 2030. This is, I, I would extrapolate up a layer and say, this is the risk uh, to your company when your business model doesn't comport with the goals of society. You know, you take a company like ExxonMobil, where fifth largest greenhouse gas emitter in, in world history, and two thirds of their business comes from com- countries that have committed to going net zero on emissions. That is not an ESG problem. That is a strategic problem. Uh, and, and I think it's the same thing with Shell here. This case would not have happened if, uh, if Shell were a manufacturer of solar panels, right, to state the obvious. Um, and so I, I, I think the lesson from this for all investors is this sort of action, um, you know, these sort of risks, uh, and the flip side, you know, if you're making electric vehicles today, you've got every government in the world trying to blow a wind at your back, this is um, this is the way that that externalities end up becoming internalized for companies. And and uh, and I'll put in, in the show notes, uh, and I've got links from from on our YouTube channel to the various um, media coverage, business media coverage of uh, what happened at um, the ExxonMobil AGM and and uh, Engine Number One's role. Um, in brief, what should investors, any investor? take away from that moment, but also could you offer up very quickly what they should not take away as a lesson from that? Investors should take away, uh, should take away the idea that ultimately environmental issues are economic issues. I mean, this is the case we made um, as a firm. It was that uh, to succeed as an energy company in a rapidly decarbonizing world, you have to gradually purposely reposition your business in a way that takes advantage of your scale and expertise in your workforce. Uh, but you have to recognize the reality of what's happening in the world. And, and, um, and I think ultimately, if we were successful, it was because we were able to make the economic and corporate governance argument 
to shareholders. Um, what, what folks shouldn't take away is that every engagement, every um, interaction with companies always has to be some big public fight you know, that's on the front page of the newspaper, that ultimately a lot of this work happens more collaboratively. You know, many CEOs want to be working on these issues and, and they want investor support to do the right thing for the long term of their business and, and for stakeholders. Um, and a lot of this work happens behind closed doors. So uh, we really, as active owners, we have to focus on every tool we have from votes we cast and collaborative engagements um, uh, all the way up to proxy campaigns and everything in between. Excellent. But let's uh, wrap Deep Dive 3 with uh, ESG in 100 moments. I'm working on a book on a brief history of ESG and I know your total value framework uh, does a light touch on that. If you were to pick up a book on ESG in 100 moments, what moment would you absolutely want to find out about in that book? Yeah, besides, besides this podcast, I assume you're saying, besides, <laughs> um, besides this conversation. <laughs> the generous um, guest, we love you. Please come yeah, back. Yeah, I, I would... Um, I mean, there's some obvious ones, you know, around the anti-apartheid divestment movement. Um, one I would point to, uh, this is a personal interest to me because I was there was, um, or because I wrote about it, uh, was the um, Harvard-Yale game a couple of years ago when the divestment movement, the yeah. student protesters, charged the field and stopped play and, and got ESPN, got Sports Center to say the words climate change on air for the first time. You know, this was a... Um, this is an area where I think it, in many ways it exemplified the theory of change, the divestment movement, which is making these issues front and center. Obviously, engine number one, I take a little bit of a different approach in my theory of change of engagement over divestment, but, uh, but divestment has been extremely powerful and successful and important in getting investors to recognize that if they care about climate change, they have to understand how it affects their portfolio and what to do about it. Great. So You are listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast, hosted by Graham Sinclair. Вы слушаете ESG and Coffee podcast. С вами Graham Sinclair. Great. So let's land with a faster special shot question set four. Here we go. What is your favorite word? Purpose. What is your least favorite word? Hypocrisy. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I, I like to play author. I think I would, um, I would like to attempt to be a, a writer full time. What profession other than your own would you not like to attempt? With, with no offense meant whatsoever, but, um, but I uh, have all the admiration, but none of the desire to be a lawyer. What attribute does an excellent investor have? A BS meter. Which living person do you most admire? I most admire um, a lot come to mind, uh, but maybe one I'll just highlight from, uh, from our book, um, a CEO like Paul Pullman from Unilever, who, uh, who I think really exemplified how you try and balance stakeholder value in a company. What is your greatest extravagance? Farmer's markets. Which talent would you most like to have? I would love to be able to play music. What do you consider your greatest achievement? I think uh, being able to be part of this movement, this broader ESG movement, this broader movement to kind of repurpose capitalism um, is, is work worth doing. And what is your idea of perfect happiness? 
I always think of the uh, a Teddy Roosevelt quote, something like, you know, life's greatest happiness is to be able to work hard at work worth doing. Something like that. So I think um, in addition to all the obvious ones around friends and family and all that, I think uh, being able to be engaged in work that you feel like is worth doing is a great, a great joy. So Goldilocks question. One share of Tesla was trading this week around $743. Is that too high, too low, or just right? Mm, I don't have a personal position in it. I, I, mean, I would probably say offhand, it's pretty fully valued. At this point, I think investors maybe are correctly recognizing the, um, the value that's going to happen in transition towards electric vehicles. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, what role Tesla is going to play in that, I think, uh, We'll have to see. It depends on what the big OEMs do, like Ford and GM and others. Got it. Well, here we in for our, our market close. You've been a fine guest, Michael. You're one of the originals. Thank you for your hard work in new ways, new paths you know, across your career. The investments you make become the world that we live in. Thank you for trying to make it better. And thank you so much for joining me on the ESG and Coffee podcast. Thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. And now we keep the tape rolling to hear from Graham and his guest as they reflect on their discussion and anything they wanted to add. Well, like we do every time with our guests here on ESG and Coffee, we've got a few minutes to kick back and reflect on how the interview went and, and anything there else they'd like to share in our segment called Bonus Tape. So uh, yeah, thanks, Michael, so much for handing the interview as well as you did. Clearly, we have to go to two hours like Tim Ferriss does. So <laughs> try for that next time. Uh, so bonus tape question number one. Well, there are no list of questions, but what, what do you think we missed? Or what do you feel you want to clarify or say again? I think I spent so much time as an investor in this space, spent so much time thinking about the role of investors um, that it's it's good to take a step back every once in a while. And remember, investors are one critical part of this puzzle, especially in a capitalist economy where, in many ways, the capitalist is king. Yeah. But only one piece of the puzzle, and so you know, I think it's always worth remembering at the end of these things that um, the decisions we make as consumers matters a ton. The decisions we make as employees. Um, you've seen so many employee protests at companies on social and environmental issues. I think it's really heartening. Um, and then obviously as voters, you know, it's probably more people. This is one of the shocking stats I found when I was researching for Accountable. More people think it's important to vote than actually vote in this oh, country. Man. You know, our voter participation rate in the U.S. is somewhere between Slovakia and Slovenia. Oh, so so it is, um, it is uh, you know, one big part of the puzzle is the investor part. But we really need to be doing everything we can across every role we inhabit. Yeah, no, I, I, I can well... Um... Uh, connect with that and and that's actually one of the first questions i ever asked in a, in a public forum in the u.s back in 2003 i was at the net impact conference as a as a mba and i asked the question of hannah jones uh, then at nike and if you recall uh, you know the 90s drama around their supply chain yeah. and so on and i asked her this very pointed question uh which has stayed with me it turns out to be pretty golden which is are you more afraid of the activist consumer or the activist investor. Hmm. So you don't have to answer that if you don't want to, but I think huh. that was, <laughs> that was um, the way she reacted and then and her answer and then subsequently elsewhere that I've asked it because, you know, fundamentally, you know, now that I'm teaching again, I'm trying to find ways to explain this to students and make them sensitive to, so, well, where will the in -cap, uh, uh, impacts come? Yeah, yeah. so 
if it's a revenue impact, like you trying to figure out where it is, if it's an investor impact, you're trying to figure out, well, what's, how's it going to change the board and or our capital budgeting decisions or a strategy and, and so on. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, was there any uh, question you really wanted me to ask, uh, ask but uh, I, I, it never came up? I, I never asked you? I feel we covered some good ground. Uh, let me think. I think we covered most of it. Maybe I would say um, you know, an area I'm really interested in, in talking about is um, you know, the risk that it, in, in many ways, um, trust is so important in a uh, in an economy like ours and trust has been so eroded over time yeah it's one thing i think a lot about is like how do you restore that trust you know how do you build that trust as a new company how do you restore that trust for for companies been operating for a long time and Mm. do a whole show on it but um but thinking about i think if if i'm a business leader today i think think about how you build trust with your employees how you build trust with your consumer stakeholders so critical yeah, absolutely. That's actually, I, I was paging through your book again. Um, and uh, there's a section here, Restoring Trust with Accountability, page 240. Yeah. And I was recently describing it to an asset management, you know, a fairly famous brand. They're best known as being fundamental investors. You know, they're not bright and shiny. You know, they, they don't have meme, meme stock portfolios, anything like that. They're more kind of, you know, we're fundamental. We're looking at the yeah. numbers. Talk to me about valuation. And I was trying to explain to them the importance of building trust. Investment is an intangibles business. You, you rely on your reputation so much, mm-hmm. particularly on the asset gathering side. And uh, yeah, you know, trust comes in layers. It's like varnish, you know, you kind of varnish layers on, right? And then it weathers, you, you, you sand it down and, and varnish again. Yeah. Well, it's, I think, um, I think um, it might be Warren Buffett who says it's about reputation. I can't quite remember, but something like, mm-hmm. You know, reputation is built over a lifetime and lost in a minute, you know, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing with trust. I mean, it's, it's hard to build and easy to lose. Yeah. Um, but especially in business, I mean, you think about finance, healthcare, a lot of these industries where there's a big information asymmetry, mm. it really requires people to want to do business with you, requires that they, they trust you. And, and right. I think there's a lot of ways you can try and do that with, transparency and accountability. I think one of the biggest ones, this is um, an area that's um, a pet topic of mine, is how do you create business models where there is inherent alignment between between all parties, uh, between making money and doing good and and serving society and serving your customers. It's not an easy thing to do and a lot of industries don't have it, but um, but, that's one great way to build trust is show people that all of our interests, we rise or fall together. Yeah. Uh, very true and and oftentimes when you're working uh on the trust piece you know it's not fancy it's not it's not going to help you you know knock the lights out on some kind of performance and in some ways i have found myself talking about license to operate for the financial services sector for an investment manager and it's unusual language that language came from sustainable development that language came from uh, community development around mining and extractors and so on they're very familiar with that right and then, you know, just more recently, and, you know, the protests happening now in Manhattan, they, I you know, assume there will be more now through the fall and winter uh, as, you know, activists, as, as consumers, as people who, who want changes in, in what gets drilled or burned or, and who, who picks up the price for it. 
you know, so now the question that used to just be a mining industry question is now an investment industry question. And the question is, what is your license to operate? Are you, which goes both to the kind of the cost of your products and, you know, the hidden incentives versus, you know, one reason why I'm such a fan of accentuated funds is it's pretty transparent, right? You know, it's, there's a shelf and you'll reach for, you know, VOTE or some other ETF off the shelf. And there, you know, there's the number, there's not hidden layers within there. So, so I, th I think that's, you know. Now here's, here's the worry though. Here's the worry. This is why greenwashing is so dangerous is I think we're at this moment with ESG and responsible investing movement, sustainable business movement. I think we're at this moment where a critical mass of people still have hope in it that it yeah. actually is going to be the fundamental change. Um, they're still willing to believe yeah. that there is better ways to run big financial institutions or better ways to run big energy companies. I think that, um, you know, that in many ways, that trust, that, that there's some real um, heat to this movement, um, some mm -hmm. real fundamental change that can happen, is not going to last forever. And, yeah. um, and the big risk with greenwashing is that a year from now, three years, five years from now, people say we haven't seen results for all this happy talk right. and all this hollow marketing, you know, it's, it's, you, you can see back to, um, I always think about like the Occupy Wall Street movement, right? where it's like people weren't trying to reform big banks, they're trying to burn them to the ground. And, and I think um, we've got this unique moment where people are willing to believe that there's better ways to, uh, to run a capitalist economy. And, and we need to seize that opportunity and, and show that it's true, it's possible. Yeah. And um, here's uh, in, in a different direction here but to your book there's a question i wanted to get to what we ran out of time on was you put out this fantastic tweet and i'll include in the show notes where you had uh and i've often thought of this because i've had you know a few mates and all people i respect greatly have put out their first book and you had this great tweet which had a photo of your book in the wild it's something like uh, i saw my book in the wild for the first time or what have uh, you yeah. Yeah. I just thought that is such a, you know, that's such a human moment, a significant moment. And, uh, you know, and then you shared with us on the podcast, yeah, one day, maybe I'll be a professional writer. Well, first <laughs> of all, kudos to you. If, you know, however small your royalty checks are, you're now a professional writer, right? Co-writer. Um, so, but can you maybe take a minute or two? Just, uh, how did that feel? How, how, did, yeah. how did the book in the wild feel in that moment? Oh, I, I appreciate that. I mean, especially um, for, uh, I've got some other friends who wrote their first book during COVID and, right. and uh, you, know, you don't quite do the book talk circuit right. the way you might do it sure. normal times. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what's so unique about it is you know, so many people spend their lives working on such important projects, but, mm. but you know, what they have to show at the end of the year is, um, is you know, a million uh, Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations yeah. and meetings on their calendar. And, and so, you know, to have this, uh, to have a single object that at least at this point in my life and in Warren, my co-author's life, best described um, the way we see the world, you know, for all of its good and bad, right. and all the opportunities, right. all the risks is um, a really special opportunity. Mm. Mm. And I'm going to tease you of the five uh, dust jacket um promo quotes you've got there you know clearly rebecca henderson for me is you know one out of five uh you've got a fast moving consumer goods there you've got uh, governor uh, patrick how, how how did you uh i mean how how many coffees did you have to buy them to get those on the on the back page <laughs> i think this is uh, one of my big takeaways is um it is amazing what people will do if you just ask 
Yeah. So it's, um, I mean, it's, it's helpful if you know someone who knows someone, but for sure, I think when you're working on this sort of thing and you reach out to people, everyone we reach out to for blurbs and for other help with the book for interviews, et cetera. Yeah. Once you kind of describe the project you're working on, so many people are trying to do something in this space. They're trying to right. figure out this space. So we, um, I was very surprised really uh, of the reaction when, you know, we'd send out a cold email and someone would say, I love, you know, I love this movement. I love what's happening. I want to yeah. help yeah. happen any way I can. And, and uh, so, you know, is he going to come out in Mandarin? We got a shot at Russian or Turkish, uh, you know, Spanish, yeah. what, what you got? Well, we just we just sold the rights in South Korea, so I'm I'm still oh, waiting nice. on seeing the proofs, but um, it'll be fun to see it in another language. Well, yeah, I, I just watched uh, again the escape of um, oh, who was the CEO of uh, Nissan Renault, who escaped to Lebanon. I just saw uh, that uh, documentary, and I'm thinking, well, maybe Japan would like one of these too, right? They're working on their corporate governance there for Starbucks. Oh yeah, yeah. sure. Um, I've got my last question is going to be a question from my 10 year old, which I want to drop to you uh, in a moment. Firstly, uh, let me ask the forward looking question. What does the future hold for you, Michael? Are you, you know, there were times in our interview there, you were sounding like candidate O'Leary. Let, let me be clear. Other times you sound like <laughs> investor O'Leary. Other times you sounded like, you know, you could have been doing a lecture with me. Um, what does the future hold for you? No, I appreciate that. The um, engine number one is such a um, incredible platform to have been able to be a part of right at the start. And so, and so right now, as far as the eye can see, I'm excited about helping to build out engine number one, helping to build out this space of sustainable investing. I mean, it's to be part of a um, small part, but to be part of a movement that is growing so fast, is getting so much attention that you know is gonna look totally different five, 10 years from now than what it looks like today, than what it looked like five, 10 years ago. Um, I can't imagine anything I'd rather be doing. Nice. All right. This question from a 10-year-old also helps uh, get towards a question that Phil Ritz put on uh, Twitter a bit earlier, which uh, I'll be sure to include in the show notes. But here goes. I hope the recording plays. My dad, my dad said I could uh, ask a question. I am 10 years old, and I want to know, how do you know that your plan for fixing ExxonMobil will work? Wow, you saved the hardest-hitting interviewer for last. <laughs> I, told, I warned you about these kids, man. I've warned you before. These kids are simple questions that go straight to the heart of the matter. So a lot of my time when I'm doing my work in sustainable investing, I'm thinking, how am I going to explain this at the dinner table? So you're up. Yeah. Oh, it's great. And it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I mean, the reality is with any company, it looks the way it does today because of decisions that were made years ago. Uh, for a company like Exxon, you think about the average age of an oil field, for instance, that might be in operation for 10, 30, 50 years. And so our goal, anyone, any investor's goal should be, how do we make sure that the decisions they're making today that are going to affect what the company looks like 10, 30, 50 years from now, how do we make sure that those decisions are the best they can possibly be? The best for the long term of the company and for the planet. And so the way we, the way we our, our approach to do that was to try and get the right people in the room to help make those decisions. People who had deep experience in energy, who had deep understanding of climate change. 
And the hope is that through that, we can help shift the trajectory. But I should say with, with investing, though, it's always, um, you never know anything for certain. And so you know, our job now is, is really just beginning and hoping to make sure that that transformation happens the way it should. Excellent, Michael. I know you, I, you, you must be handling a lot of questions, you and the team at Engine Number One. I know David Roberts uh, was reflecting on the Chevron CEO getting interviewed and saying, yeah, we'll just send the money back to shareholders and ask them to plant trees. So uh, there's going to be, you know, leading up to COP26, definitely, there's going to be more focus on how much can you engage, how long can you engage for, and when do things change that you have to kind of part way. So uh, I really appreciate you answering yeah. that question. I really appreciate you spending as much time as you did with us today on ESG and coffee. Uh, really classy of you. Thank you, Michael. And uh, the way things are developing, the way your future is developing, I expect we'll have you on again at some future season. Thank you, Graham. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Stay well. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael O'Leary of Engine Number One. Here's my four high points very briefly. One, moving ESG into ETFs. Exchange-traded funds are an important new technology that allows investment funds to drive down costs, increase transparency and liquidity, and make investment more accessible to more types of investors. Hearing Michael talk about the Transform ETF, ticker symbol VOTE, V-O-T-E, was a high point. Together with the reasoning about how that ETF will work next to the engine number one hedge fund with its active owner and activist investor approach. I've chosen it as one of the investment models that we'll study for my new class, making the sustainable investing case at Harvard Extension School. High point number two, tackling the bigger picture. After working as one of the founding team of the Bain Capital Double Impact Fund, an impact fund led by former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick at Bain, Michael made very good use of his sabbatical to co-write the book Accountable. Michael's reaction to my observation, I could hear the tone of a candidate O'Leary on the interview, suggested Mr. Deval's path may be a model too, a different way to influence the investment ecosystem. Perhaps Michael's career may want to trace that of Brian Deese, for example, moving from government to, quote, global head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, unquote, and back to government. High point number three, ambition, then action. John Sturman, co-founder of the MIT Slow and Sustainability Initiative, has said, quote, aspirations are great, actions are essential, unquote. Michael and colleagues had the benefit of being one for one after their small hedge fund tackled the largest of mega-cap firms, ExxonMobil, in 2020-2021. As Michael has said, quote, a year ago we were a no-name hedge fund. We can now have tons of impact without running a proxy campaign, unquote. In the 2019 proxy season, Michael's data showed that no climate-related proposal passed at a shareholder meeting. Then three passed in 2020, and in 2021, 11 passed, including that. Climate risk is investment risk. Investors are moving to act more directly. I appreciated Michael's detailed responses to my questions on the philosophy and approach they will take. And high point number four, reading to understand. I consider every gentleman or lady should be measured by their library, given their life circumstance. So when Michael spoke of being early impressed by Merton Malkiel's 
Random Walk Down Wall Street, and the many books of Jack Bogle, the red one is the better, the little book of common sense investing. I paid attention to what Michael wanted to say. Michael's even been interviewed in an impressive looking library, but not on this day. But that's why he's young and has a solid book published already. And maybe, like his co-author, he'll have a TED Talk up soon. Words are the reason why the interview ran long. It could have been much longer. I look forward to Michael's next book, which hopefully will cover his first years at Engine Number 1. I hope you stayed on for the uh, bonus tape after the close. I find that really interesting. I'll have some show notes about that. As always, thank you for listening uh, and watch us on Twitter at ESG and Coffee for news of the show. And thank you to Kat Farkerson and the team making ESG and Coffee happen. Look forward to our next and last episode, season one, episode 12, coming up soon. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview with one of the originals in investing strategy and sustainability. Please subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or on YouTube and leave a five-star review. Bad reviews you can send to Graham Sinclair at ESG Architect. All the details are in the show notes. And for news of our next guests, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ESG and Coffee. Do you know an impressive human we should absolutely interview on investment strategy and sustainability? Please let us know on Twitter at ESG and Coffee. Our producer is Kat Farquharson on Twitter at Kat Farquharson and original music by Aaron Bonney on Twitter at Aaron Bonney Music. And of course, this podcast is for your enlightenment, not investment advice. Do your own research. You have been listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing, strategy and sustainability hosted by Graham Sinclair. Thank you.